Usually at this time, I would say kids kindergarten through third grade can head downstairs, but because of the holiday weekend, uh, we do not have kids' activities this morning outside of the infant toddler room. With that said, um, I'm going to try and limit my time this morning. I know how often that doesn't go well, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, And if kids in here do need activities, there are coloring pages in the back and color crayons back there also to keep engaged. Remember next week, September 8th, Sunday, September 8th, our new divisions of kids' classrooms are going to be taking place. If you have questions about those, you can contact Rachel Uden. She'd be happy to give you the details of exactly what that looks like. But we're going from three to five classrooms next week for our our kiddos um, and, uh, and the divisions. Again, those are actually on the back of your discussion guide also this morning. Take your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the back table back there, back by where Daryl's standing. Wave your hand, Daryl. We'd love to see you. There he is. And there are Bibles back there. You can pick one up and grab one um, at any point. It's good for you to see uh, what we're talking about when we're looking at God's Word together. It's the foundation for what we'll be talking about this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are, in fact, others, uh, 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 paperback copies on the far back table. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please grab one. Uh, That is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word to take home with you this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we are this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter, 17 verses, and then then dive in. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because this sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. 
And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In the 2008 film, The Dark Knight, uh, you, under, you know that movie. It's about Batman. I love Batman. It's one of my favorite films. In that film, after a night of crime fighting, Alfred, Bruce Wayne's enduring butler, tells Bruce, he says, know your limits, Master Wayne. And Bruce replies, Batman has no limits. And Alfred says to Bruce, well, you do. To which Bruce then replies, well, can't afford to know him. Alfred says, and what happens on the day that you find out? Bruce, we all know how much you love to say I told you so. And then Alfred says, on that day, Master Wayne, even I won't want to, probably. The conversation between Bruce Wayne and his butler, Alfred, is integral to the whole film. And it's trying to ask the question, mostly, the film is trying to ask the question, where are the limits? Where are the limits on Bruce Wayne, on Batman, on evil, on good? If you've seen the film, you understand this. You didn't know you were going to analyze an 11-year-old comic book movie this morning, but that's what we're doing. Bruce Wayne has limits. He says Batman doesn't. Alfred points out that even Batman has limits. And so when we get to chapter 8 in Ecclesiastes, we see that the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes and Alfred have something in common. They cause us to ask about limits. They cause us to ask about limits. In particular, our own personal limits. Our own limits. If I'm honest with myself, and I think that you probably, if you were honest with yourself, would probably think something similar. We hate our limits. We hate the fact that we're limited creatures. This week, personally, I spent a bit of time considering what it would look like to get another degree. My wife, yeah, no, I, I don't need another degree right now. I overcommitted on several fronts, stretched myself too thin. I cut my sleep too short on a couple of nights with an early morning alarm just to get more things done. I drove our minivan 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. I drank another cup of coffee to try and keep my brain engaged in the afternoon when I started to crash. All of these things that I did and reflecting on these things indicate that I think the limits placed on me are too rigid and, frankly, are unhelpful. And that if I can just break free of these limits, or if I just work harder, or I'm more physically fit, or I drink that cleverly marketed energy drink, that I'll be out from under these limits. But the preacher, again, argues against this type of living that's so prevalent in our culture, 21st century America. America. 
And so when we look at this text, if you don't hear anything else, let me say this. This is, this is what I think the preacher is ultimately communicating in this text in chapter 8. Properly knowing your limits is a gift from God. Properly knowing your limits is a gift from God. Properly knowing your limits communicates what we really believe about God. And it lays the foundations for joy. Let me say that again because I don't think I made a slide for it. Properly knowing your limits is a gift from God. It communicates what we really believe about God. And it lays the foundations for joy. When I reflect on that statement, I think that oftentimes, me, myself, and I think this is probably true for many of you too, are we are practical atheists. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes we live our lives in such a way that says, with our mouths, I believe that there is a God and that God exists. However, when it comes down to the practical, our life gives no evidence that God does in fact exist. And this is one of those areas that I think we do this almost more than any other area. When we don't properly assess and acknowledge what our limits are as a creature, when we're always pushing the limits placed on us, it's a form of practical atheism. What we're saying is, with my lips, God exists and is sovereign over all things and has everything under his control, but the way that I live my life, when I push those limits aside and say, I, am, I should not be limited in the way that I'm limited here, we ultimately say, God doesn't. So, when we get to chapter 8 in Ecclesiastes, we see the preacher hammering on our limits, calling us to wisely acknowledge what they are, and then giving us the proper response to it. What is the proper response to these limits? First, again, we need to properly acknowledge and wisely do so what our limits are. Look at verse 1. This sets up this, this understanding in chapter 8. The preacher writes, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Wisdom in large part is seeing things as they really are. You cannot be wise and not acknowledge things the way that they truly are. The preacher realizes that there are limits on wisdom. If you look at the end of the chapter, verses 16 and 17, he says that he applies his heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then look at verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. All the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. So he knows that there are limitations on wisdom, and yet he still calls us to pursue it, to view the world rightly. That's the beginning place, the foundation of wisdom. But the discussion of limitations finds itself first rooted in the fear of God. And if we do not fear God, if we do not rightly acknowledge who God is, then we cannot rightly acknowledge what's going on around us on earth. And so the discussion of limits is an attempt for us, you and me, and Solomon here in this text, 
to see things as they really are and to see ourselves in particular in the discussion of limits as we really are. So he explores five things in chapter 8, five limits placed on us that the preacher outlines for us. Earthly authority, heavenly authority, earthly injustice, heavenly wisdom, and then finally we'll lump these two together, time and death. Five things, and we're going to explore, think about these things just a little bit, and then engage in the response that he gives to us in verse 15. Eat, drink, and be joyful. We'll explore that idea again. So first, these five limits, though. First is earthly authority. Consider this with me. Look at verses 2 through 5. He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath with him in verse 2. The preacher tells us to keep the king's command. That which the king says to do, we should also follow. What should, why should we do this? Because God has put him in that position. We should live our lives according to the authorities placed above us on earth, the preacher says. The Apostle Paul would echo this at the end of Romans. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he would say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is exactly what the preacher is saying. You and I are subject to earthly authority. This is a limit that God has in place. If you dodge your taxes and you don't pick up after your dog in the park, that says something about what you think about who God is. You may be like, oh, that has nothing to do with it. In fact, it does. You're saying that God didn't put that authority in place, like the preacher says and like Paul says in Romans 13. Or we're saying that God did put that authority in place, but he didn't really know what he was doing. It says something practical about what we believe about God. Paul says that's wrong thinking. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Solomon would write one book earlier in Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the first limit is earthly authority. You are subject to earthly authorities, and that means they represent a limit on us because God, who is over all, has put that authority in place. The second limit, then, that the preacher outlines for us is heavenly authority. And we've got to skip ahead a little bit to verses 10 through 13. See a section there, a paragraph. The preacher explores again this idea of the fear of God, which we've seen several times in our time in Ecclesiastes. What does it mean to fear God? We could define the fear of God as rightly acknowledging God's authority. The preacher then contrasts two types of people, like he does so often. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous are those who fear God, and the wicked are those who do not. The wicked do that which they want. He says that they come and go out of the holy place. And sometimes they're even praised for their wickedness in the city. But 
then there's this interesting verse, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So what he's saying is, because justice isn't dished out quickly, even in light of their wickedness, what it doesn't mean is that their wickedness is overlooked by a heavenly authority, God himself. So, when the wicked do something that's wicked, and they don't get hit by lightning the first time, they ignore God. And then the second time, they do it again, and they don't get hit by lightning again. And the third time, they do it again, and they get away with it again. They become more and more resolved to do evil, or they become more confident in their sin. This is a warning for all of us, not for just those who we would consider wicked. Unchecked sin breeds more sin. Unchecked sin breeds more sin. This is what we can take away from this verse. When you openly slander a brother or sister in Christ, when your gaze lingers a bit too long on a woman who's not your wife, men, when you harbor bitterness and anger against another person, when you unleash your tongue against a coworker, or when you passively aggressively deal with the neighbor who hasn't mowed their lawn and it looks more like the Amazon than it does a lawn, that's when in your heart you've known you've sinned, but rather than repent, you look around, nothing bad has happened. Lightning didn't strike me. Maybe God didn't see it. And so you do it again and again, and unchecked sin breeds more sin. The preacher says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We may think that God's patience is a lack of authority, but that's not the case at all. If we think that God's patience is a lack of authority to do anything about our sinful activity, We've miscalculated God again. The preacher says that is utter foolishness. You should rightly acknowledge God's authority. That's the fear of God. Just as God puts earthly authority in place, his authority remains intact and exists to put that earthly authority in place. Even when we're the beneficiaries of his patience, his authority remains intact. The wicked do what they want and show that they mistake God's patience for a lack of authority, but the righteous see rightly and acknowledge God's authority as a limit and therefore fear him. The third limit then we see, look at verse 14 with me, is earthly injustice. Just this one verse. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. This is an idea that we've explored a lot over the last couple of weeks. Life under the sun doesn't always, you don't always get what you feel like you deserve. You may act righteously, but you may be dealt with according to the deeds of the wicked. That feels unjust. And therefore, because it feels unjust, it represents a limit in our world. Circumstances that are unjust put limits on us. You get passed over a promotion in favor of a coworker who lacks integrity. 
That's a limit. You get charged for an item you didn't order and rec- or, or receive at a restaurant. When you call them back, they don't believe you. You get assigned to play junior varsity when you're better than half of those on the varsity team. You don't have the same opportunities as someone who lives in a big city, so you're unable to get into the college you really want to. The injustice of the world represents a limit. You can't ignore it, but it's the reality. Stuff happens that's outside of your control, and it limits you. In the preacher's observation in verse 9, he says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. When man-made organizations are in place, injustice will occur. When man is in charge of an organization, injustice will occur. You may love your boss or community leader, but that leader may hurt you by a decision he makes. The economy slips. You get laid off. That may seem unjust, but organizations run by men who are subject to limits are subject to limits themselves, and the result can be injustice, which introduces, again, another limit. You're subject subject to earthly injustice. You may act the right way at the right time in the right place and still come out empty-handed. The fourth limit, then, that the, the preacher explores is heavenly wisdom. Again, verses 16 and 17, we referenced these right at the outset. Solomon says that he gave himself to knowing wisdom. He applied his heart. He didn't sleep, and he sought it out, and then he sought. And this is the work of God, that man can't find out the work of God. Get that. The work of God is that man cannot find out the work of God. That's what Solomon says. Because it's heavenly wisdom, because God is unlimited and we are limited, this represents a limit. God knows and sees everything we don't. It's really that simple. God is ever-present. We are in one place. God is infinite. We are finite. God is unchanging. We are constantly changing. God is all-knowing. We have tiny knowledge. God is all-powerful, and we are weak. The preacher says we can toil and strive and endure sleeplessness and still remain limited. The preacher says a person can say that he or she knows, but don't believe him. God is all wise. We aren't. We're limited. The last limit that the preacher talks about is time and death. Again, lumped together. Look at verses 6 and 7. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is, what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? We're about a time, by time. Remember back in chapter 3, there's a time and a season for everything. We don't know what it'll be. We don't know our future. Who can tell us how it'll be? Very few, if any of us, will be alive in 100 years from now. And even if we did live 100 years from this point, could we jump ahead and find out what was going to happen and come back and tell everybody about it? No. The reality that the preacher wants to communicate is that death is coming. Verse 8, 
No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. We apply ourselves to staving it off. But we're just covering up signs that it's coming. Wrinkle cream, hair dye. We may feel like we have the power over the day of death when we have a good workout, but the next morning when we wake up and it's really hard to get out of bed, we remember the slow decay our bodies are undergoing. This represents the ultimate limit. The clock is ticking on all of us and death closes in on all of us. So these five limits are things that the preacher explores for us. So then we ask ourselves, well, what's the response to this understanding? If we grapple with this reality, if we actually wisely assess what's going on in life under the sun, then what are we to do to respond to it? This continues to be the thrust for the preacher. You don't get to pick and choose exactly how things unfold in your life most of the time. But the question then is, how are we to respond to it? He continues to hammer this idea. Verse 15 is the response that the preacher prescribes for us. He commends joy. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my mind. But track with me on this. Track with me on this. A, A real understanding of life under the sun and the recognition that we have and are subject to limits, the things that we just explored, earthly and heavenly authority, earthly injustice, heavenly wisdom, time and death, the recognition that we are subject to these things lays the groundwork for joy in our lives. When we're always railing against our limits, the first thing to go out the window is our joy. I mentioned earlier that I overextended myself this week on my calendar. I said yes to one too many things, and it disrupted my joy early in the week. And then I failed to lead our family into joy. I thought I could pull off one more thing, get one more thing done, blew through that limit, and we suffered for it. Joy comes when we recognize who God is, first and foremost. God is without limits, and we have significant limits. We need to put our head on that soft, supportive pillow tonight. God is without limits. We have significant limits. But when we act like the limits that God has put on us are really just stop signs to be ignored or to be treated like yield signs, that pillow becomes a rock and we lose our joy. Joy is what the preacher commends to us. And he tells us how to get it. He actually just tells us how to get it. He says, and these three things that we're going to talk about here in conclusion, the three things, three ways that he tells us how to get joy. 
First, we've already discussed this at length. It's realize your limits and trust the one who is without limits. Realize your limits and trust the one who is without limits. And here's a reason why following Jesus is so wonderful. God wants you to know your limits. So many worldviews and world religions demand performance out of you. They demand that you blow through your limits. But Christianity is so unique in this. When we study God's word, we see that it points out over and over again our inability to perform. But instead of pointing out that inability, then demanding it anyways, God gently shows us our limits. He doesn't want us to despair and say, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough. But he gently shows us our limits so that we will trust him for everything. Not to just make up the difference, but to genuinely rely on him for everything. You know, you've seen it, maybe you even have this in your home, but like a coffee mug that says, Jesus and coffee, these are the things that I need in my life. Like, Jesus isn't making up the difference for your caffeine addiction and staying awake throughout the day. That's like a reduction of what Jesus is for us. He's not just making up a difference. But to genuinely rely on him for everything is what he calls us to. So God is gently showing us our limits to realize them and trust the one who is without limits. And so that leads us to the second idea, and I want to flesh this out for a moment. Beware of Christianity that demands you just do better or just do more. Christian self-help may be a category in Barnes and Noble, but it's not one in the Bible. Christian self-help is no help at all. I'm frequently struck by how much Christian media, books and music and blogs and sermons and movies are just aimed at getting you to perform a bit better. If you're just trying to be a better dad or a mom, just apply these three simple parenting tips. Or if you just tried a little harder to be a better husband or wife, or maybe if you were a better employee or a better church member, things would be going better for you right now. the preacher's mind would just be about to explode at those types of comments. If you just tried a little harder, performed a little better, worked a little harder on the thing, then things would go well with you and you'd be happy. Friends, this idea, this, this self-help approach to the Christian life diminishes the work of Jesus on the cross. This thinking would reduce the work of Jesus again to filling in a gap for us, where we couldn't quite muster up all of what we need. And this thinking diminishes God to a vending machine designed to spit out fortune cookie responses to our tough days. Christianity that tells you you can do it and God can help is an abomination in a scheme of Satan designed to distract you from knowing the one and true living God who created you with a word and designed you to trust him as your source of all things. I'm not overstating that. That's not hyperbolic. It is a scheme of Satan. If your Christianity is focused on sprinkling Jesus in when things get a bit tough, you will live a life of joylessness. Guaranteed, the preacher says it. 
But when you realize that it's not by your own performance that you're made right with God, that despite your limits, God saved you by sending his son to die for you, then you will find joy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are not to just work harder, do better, and do more. Our limits show us that we are to rest in the one, Jesus Christ, who worked perfectly, did perfectly, and is more than enough. You fit into none of those categories. Jesus fits into them all. Jesus isn't your self-help strategy. Jesus is the king of the universe who died so that you might live. Everything from your next breath to eternity is tied up in his work. So beware then, Christian, of a Christianity that demands that you just do more or perform better. The final thought then I'll give you this morning. This is the third way that the preacher tells us that we can get joy Chew your food, sip your drink, and get some sleep. The preacher commends joy. He says, eat, drink, and be joyful. A common consideration for us in this book, this is maybe the fourth or fifth time this idea has popped up for us. And I think the reason he goes here again is because he really wants you to slow down. He really wants us to slow down. In an age of rapid pace and information overload, this is difficult. The reason the preacher goes here again is because he really wants us to slow down. Because when you slow down, you begin to realize and recognize that you, in fact, have limits. You are finite. When you chew your food, you taste it. And you can thank God that it exists and that he saw fit to give it to you. Not just a boom, boom, prayer, thanks for the food. Get the kid to soccer practice, repeat in five or six hours. When you sip your drink, you can enjoy it. And thank God that it exists and that he saw fit to give it to you. When you get some sleep, you say, God is good. God is in control. He is sovereign over everything. Practical atheists treat eating and drinking and sleeping as an inconvenience because they get in their way of their productivity and effectiveness and busyness that they think will bring them joy and fulfillment. But those who fear God know that eating and drinking and sleeping are given to them to reveal their limitations and create opportunities to rest in who God is. They are constant reminders to slow down. Eating and drinking, these will always be part of your life and sleeping. They will always be part of your life here under the sun. You will not wake up one day and not need to drink or eat and you will not need to go to bed the next night. These will always be part of your life. At day one, or 100 days old, or 100 years old, you will need to eat and drink and sleep. So the preacher says, enjoy it. 
because they point out your limitations, which is the foundation of your joy. Joy is what we could find in the person of Jesus Christ and the reason why he did what we couldn't. Again, this is the thrust. This is what this pushes us to. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, a life that we couldn't live. We sang about it right before the sermon. He died a death paid for our sin on the cross. Jesus came out of the grave. He defeated sin and death. And he welcomes all who believe into the family of of God. Seeing our limitations so clearly like the preacher does is the pathway to joy. Railing against them and our joy will be immediately robbed. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus isn't just the one who fills the gaps when we can't muster the strength to do the thing. That's too small. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So this week, each day before you roll out, of your, uh, roll out of bed, remind yourself, fight for this truth. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. And fight for joy in Jesus. You're a limited creature. He's the way that you could not make, the truth that you could not find, and the life that you could not earn. But all of those things are available to you in him. Let's pray.